Hey, everybody. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of Never Go Full Nelson. And uh, as usual, we've got my son, Nick Nelson, and I What's are up? here. And we've got a special guest. Uh, he is a sociologist and writer based in London. He is a senior lecturer at Leo Bake College, senior research uh, fellow at the Institute of Jewish Policy Research, and an associate lecturer and honorary fellow at Berkert College. He has a broad range of interests, including metal music, the Jewish culture, denialism, racism, dialogue, conflict resolution language, and the co- he is the author and co-author of eight books and many other articles and reviews. His work has appeared in publications, including The Guardian, New Humanist, and Prospect. His most recent book is The Babel Message, A Love Letter to Language. It's our pleasure to welcome Dr. Keith Con harris Dr. Keith, how are Thank you? Thank you very much. Nice to be How's here. How's it going? Yeah. Yes, not too bad. It's closer to the end of the day in the UK than it is where you are, but uh, I'm still standing. Yeah, we're yeah, uh, across right. the pond from you there, <laughs> as they say. You are indeed, yes. Pond has gotten indeed. smaller somehow across. Well, yeah, I mean, this sort of stuff is is now so normative that you barely even think about it, you know, having, having these online conversations. I know that sounds quite banal, but sometimes you have to sort of uh, remind yourself that none of us were doing this. No, it's even it's pretty wild, actually. If you think about it, like it wasn't even that. You know, I'm I'm turning 45 next year, and you know, I, even just thinking back to like 2007 when the iPhones were just starting to get popular, you know, and before touchscreen, it's wild how much has changed just in the last 20 years, you know. Let alone crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're also still struggling to catch up. And it was interesting that AI has now been uh, roll, started to be rolled out. Yeah. And I think we're barely able to keep up with the implications of previous technological changes and things like um, ubiquitous media and social media. And now we have to try and work out how we're going to deal with AI as well. Yeah. Uh, there's certainly that sense of being overwhelmed by the rate of technological development. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Because well, it, go ahead, Dan. <laughs> yeah, so so I'm kind of interested in you do a lot of uh, regarding uh, or you have a lot of interest in regarding conflict resolution, dialogue, language. How do you see this playing out? Is uh, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, "Hey, you know, meetings uh, during uh, you know meetings using AI and like this thing we're doing here, video." It's not as good as a regular conversation. You can't do the things you do. What's your outlook on that? Are there things you would prefer to do in person? And uh, so far as well, I mean, it's been really interesting over the last year as things in my working life have become more as they were before the pandemic. And two things have, have sort of really struck me. One is um, that some when you work in a group with other people, face-to-face meetings create a connection and a working relationship um, that I don't th- I don't think there's much good substitute for it. So that's the first thing that struck me. But the other thing that struck me is how much time you spend if you are doing things in person that is kind of almost like dead time, you know, travel and things like that. <laughs> I mean, the, the the pandemic for me was enormously productive. It didn't mean that I was necessarily coping with it any better than other people, but I was working. It was just so incredibly efficient. But it, it was efficient. But it, it it probably the depth of relationships and the it was 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 
really suffered. And the other thing that I think that that I I notice now is is particularly when I've you know at my two employers when we have staff meetings. I remember you know during the pandemic there were a lot of conversations that you need to have with workmates that essentially only need five minutes, but that you had to make an appointment for those five minutes. Whereas those five minutes you can just do as an aside at the beginning or the end of a meeting or when you're you know walking down a corridor. So it's, it, it is really interesting, the implications of that. But to talk about the general point, I think that there is there will always be a value in meeting literally face-to-face. Yeah, I was just thinking about that um, with the pandemic. Like my son, for example, he's 10 now. And before the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of online stuff going on. There was some. But now, you know, when they did that, that you know, schooling from home and everything like that, now they don't, you know, children, they don't, I just yesterday, I had two children here at my job here at my, my, my tattoo, I have a tattoo shop here and they were both sitting in there, 10 year old boys right next to each other on their phones next to each other, not communicating with each other, but, you know, playing a game online together, communicating with each other online, sitting right next to each other. And there's that disconnect there <laughs> now because of it. It's weird. Well, I also have to say the you know, say that I, it, it does vary on the particular nature of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Because there were some relationships that I had that actually deepened during the pandemic because these sorts of conversations became normalized or conversations that I would have over the phone. Um, that I, since the pandemic, I've had audio visual, you know, like on Zoom or, or whatever it is. So it, it is, it, it, I think we're still trying to work out as a, as societies to w- what sort of What's the optimal sort of communication for what kind of relationships and for, and, and for what purposes? Um, and, and I think I would. I mean, I'm trying to be hopeful generally about the state of the world, but perhaps uh, we have made advances as a species a little bit in figuring out that, that there are multiple ways of talking and communicating and where those things are more or less appropriate. Certainly one of the best things, I'll give you an example of one thing that was really good, is um, we have, we're Jewish, my family's Jewish, so we have a Passover Seder every year. And during the two years we were locked down, we did them online. So it was very difficult, particularly the first one with my parents, who are quite elderly. But they managed it and we managed it. But one thing we could do, we suddenly realized, oh, my wife's parents are in Dallas. We could loop them in. And since lockdown ended and we actually are in person, we have them at the table on the laptop. Nice. <laughs> so that's, sort of, that's an enhancement. That's something that wasn't possible before. And no, it's not the same as all be around the same table. But it's something more than we used to have. Definitely. And... And also, and also, this podcast interview. You know, we we we're doing it visually here, mm. even though it's an audio only medium, because yeah. the technology is now good enough that we're able to enhance the experience uh, by actually looking at each other. It, it just yeah, makes for a better very, experience. Um, that's very important. I was kind of curious. Uh, the book you wrote, um, Babel, the Babel message, and or. Subtext, I guess, the the myth of the Babel message, as uh, some might say. I mean, when it comes to that and 
the confusion uh, in the legend about, uh, you know, the, everybody, nobody will be able to communicate, everybody speaking a different language. Sometimes I wonder, I wonder what you think, even though we are speaking the same language, are we really? It seems like some, that we've grown further apart to where the underlying message and the words are different now. You know what I mean? Well, uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to plug my book, The Babel <laughs> Message. Uh, the argument in that book is, the Babel myth. The Babel myth is one of the foundational myths of Western culture, and there are in fact analogs of it in other cultures too. So there's something about it that's very powerful in explaining two things. Right? It explains two things as a myth. One is why is it that humans are in conflict, and two, why is it that we speak different languages? And the Babel myth relates one to the other which is um, when God confuses humanity's tongues, as, it's, as it says there, um, to, in order to sort of damp down their hubris that makes them think they can build a tower to reach God, um, humans can no longer speak to each other and therefore they can no longer cooperate and the whole tower project collapses. Mission but complete. I, well, yeah. Uh, but my argument is, is, is that is whilst that's quite powerful as a story and has some value, it doesn't really work very well <laughs> as uh, 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 empirically. Because one of the things we know from social media, it, it, you know, we, we, we are, we're living in an intensely conflictual world now, whereas this sort of endemic argument, sometimes productive. You can't go into any not. comment thread without seeing people. Exactly. Over just anything, literally anything. But it's not a linguistic. It's not because it's, these are people who speak the same language, yeah. right? And then you look at other examples. If you say the Second World War, the conflict was, you know, it was the reason that Germany uh, uh, was at war with Britain and America and France and so on wasn't because of the linguistic differences. Right, it, it may have enhanced it, made it made it more difficult. But of course, that was at a time where multilingualism in the English-speaking world was much more common than it is. And that wasn't because people didn't understand each other linguistically; <laughs> they often understood each other very well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that there is that a lot of conflicts happen because of seeing things about people that you don't want to see, that are disillusioning, that are difficult, where differences and incompatible worldviews are revealed. And in my book, I also talk about how is it that we can make incomprehension a way of building peace, which sounds ridiculous. But the way I talk about it is I, I love languages that I can't speak. I do speak some foreign languages, not brilliantly, but I do. But there are many more languages that I don't speak and I never speak that I can't even read. And I, and I suggest in the book that we, we show some wonder at the sheer miracle of language particularly when we don't understand it so if you go to china or japan for example it seems extraordinary quite extraordinary that just everyday regular folks are are, are somehow being able to read these incredibly complex very highly differentiated characters mm. and it's actually uh, we can appreciate it more by not being able to read those characters. 
or when you hear people speaking a language that you don't speak, it just sounds, it, it's an extraordinary thing. You realize what we can do ourselves is extraordinary. So that's what I suggest. I suggest that there's a particular kind of incomprehension that can actually facilitate, at least in theory, uh, at least an appreciation for, for, for the other. Yeah, I think that that, that does tie into one of the other, uh, one of your other interests there, which is in denialism, <laughs> uh, in, in, in that, in that it's kind of the opposite of being able to understand each other. And that's why I think, Nick, that's why, you were, you know, wanted to... Well, originally I'd, I'd seen here. the article that you had written. I don't, I don't know when it was. I was, you know, we had done an episode on denialism. It's always been a big thing of mine. I, I actually deal with my son's stepfather is, he's one of these denial people. You know, he thinks we live in a dome and I have to, com- I constantly have to... Thank he God, gets all the bases. Th- yeah. Thank God my son's <laughs> smart and he thinks he's just a crazy person. Like, not, I'm not saying denialists are crazy, but kind of a little crazy to think that way sometimes, but, you know, just online in general, like, I feel, I don't know if this is how it's always been, if people have always just, you know, thought, oh, I'm, I'm, because I'm being skeptical, it makes me more awake than you want to wake up sheeple, you know, all this other stuff. But does it though? I mean, realistically speaking, most people that are denying things are things we've already figured out. These are already things we know for certain or at least a pretty good idea of and then you know I was looking online I was like you know I, I need to find somebody that's that's at least talked about this you know and I came across your article on the, in the Guardian and I was like oh man okay so this guy you know he wrote a whole book on it <laughs> you know what I mean so I did write a whole book on it what made uh, you yeah it uh, came out in 2018 <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, so you were ahead um, of the curve on that and it's still relevant yeah. sadly it's still relevant sadly um how did I come to write it? Well, I used to, when I was younger, so I'm 51 now, and when I first heard about things, I think in my teens, so in the 80s, when I heard about things like Holocaust denial mm-hmm. and various conspiracy theories and stuff, it seemed incredibly strange and almost exotic. Yeah. But ultimately, while some of the things were a bit horrific, they were also very safely marginal. Right. This was, and it, and it, and it was difficult to hunt down, you know, like, like, uh, these sorts of secret knowledges. Yeah. Um, you had to actually be quite committed to try and find these things. Um, but in, in, I'm not saying the internet, it's all because of the internet, but it's certainly one of the things that it, that it has done is it's allowed. Definitely exacerbated uh, it's it. It's leveled the playing field <laughs> to an extent. Yeah. It's not quite as simple saying everybody has an identical voice. It doesn't quite work like that, but certainly it's trivially easy, trivially easy to find things if you want to find them. Yeah, and even doing if you don't your want research, to find right? Them. <laughs> right. Doing research, I mean, I, I would argue that often doing research isn't what certainly isn't really what scholarly research is, but it, it is research to the to a degree that shopping around is research. Yeah, you know, exactly. if I'm trying to buy a new washing washing machine, you know, I'm doing research. Well, it's more <laughs> it's more searching for affirmation of your views is what they're doing, right? Yeah, not necess- not necessarily, not always. I mean, I think it's it's also some of this stuff can be really exciting. You know, that 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 sort of process of of doing it, and I think that. 
one of the there are many reasons why these sorts of phenomena have emerged, but one of them is to do with one of the reasons I think is to do with the fact that science today is profoundly alienating. There's a book mm-hmm. whose I can't remember exactly who wrote it or who it was about. So forgive me, I read it a long time ago called The Last Man Who Knew Everything. And it's about an, it's some Enlightenment scholar in the, the 18th century who made contributions to multiple different fields. Because you could do that. If you, had, if you were a gentleman with leisure, you know, that you, you could be a philosopher, you could be a natural scientist, of, uh, you could be a physicist, be a mathematician and so on but, but actually you, poly, just to, as you put it polyinterest polyinterest well polyinterested <laughs> doesn't mean you know a lot uh, exactly doesn't mean you're an expert it just means you you're interested a lot but exactly. you know that if i to just get on the starting line of making a contribution to a science or even a humanities discipline you've got to do an enormous amount of stuff mm-hmm. and it it it's usually a very little thin slice of things <laughs> that you're able to affect because science these days, whether it's the natural sciences or the social sciences or the humanities, it's just big and it's alienating because uh, it, it, specialist fields of knowledge are incredibly difficult uh, to, 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 to understand. I mean, if you've ever looked at a field outside your own, um, and you look at an academic journal article, it's completely impenetrable. And it's not something that you can bring yourself back up to speed by reading a few Wikipedia articles. Mm-hmm. Although I have a lot of appreciation for Wikipedia. And that means that we are, as, as human beings now, completely dependent on a huge number of different processes and technologies that we don't really understand. And that, in fact, no one person understands it all. Stand on the shoulder of you giants. You could even yeah. argue, you could, yeah, I mean, you could say that even the laptop that I'm looking at now, my computer now, there's probably no one person in the world who really understands all of it because it involves, it involves the specialist work in a, you know, there's somebody who's a specialist in manufacturing chips, somebody in programming, and I'm sure a thousand other things that I don't even know are inside my laptop. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of map that onto the world as a whole, which is fiendishly complicated. And it, it's, it, it's very, very difficult to, situ- to, to situate yourself easily. And it's very difficult to trust because you have to trust, right, that, that, that people know more than you do. Well, so to well that some does extent, explain, the, yeah, that does explain, I will say, the more intellectual uh, naysayer, denialist, there are some who have just genuinely nefarious uh, reasons for wanting to supplant what they know or what they think they know. Well, you, mean, it, don't you say so? Uh, my argument is something like climate change denialism or Holocaust denialism, all that kind of stuff, is that unless you have specific evidence to the contrary, you have to assume that people have convinced themselves. Yeah. Right? That's, that's what you should default to, unless there is reason to the conflict contrary but the fact is is there's a sociologist the the whole idea of motivation and belief is much fuzzier than is usually appreciated you know we don't we're not always conscious of our motivations when we're doing things we have ambivalences we are contradictory uh so 
it's probably not useful to look at motivation so much. What is much more useful is to look at experience. So I'm currently reading a book on QAnon, which I know is, you know, this huge multifaceted conspiracy theory that keeps it growing. And which is wild because there's things- so much things that, that conflict with what it would be, whether or not it would be real or not. And people just willfully choose to just ignore any of that stuff. But that's its power. That's its power is the fact that it is, it is, it is, it is a community. It's a tight knit community, but it's also radically decentralized. Mm-hmm. Anybody can make a contribution to it. And whilst there are conflicts within QAnon communities, uh, there is a sense that everybody is, is working their way towards greater knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's quite an intoxicating thing. And the sort of the earlier versions of denialism, which still exist, were quite different to that. They, they were based on, so Holocaust denialism as it developed in the post-war period was based on trying to create things that looked like, you know, ivy clad, uh, you know, <laughs> college halls and stuff, calling things institutes and so on to try and create something that looked like a legitimate part of regular scholarship. QAnon and, and other, th- other examples of what I call post-denialism just abandon that, mm-hmm. right? They're not looking for that prestige of, of, of pretending that you're at Harvard or anything. What they're looking at is the, is, is the, the simultaneous radical individualism of the search for truth and the radical community that comes from it. That's quite a co- intoxicating. I mean, I have a debate. There's one person, there's a person I know on Twitter who I have this long-running debate with, which is, are people who sign up to these things, are they happy or not? Mm. And, he said, and he points to things like, I've read a lot of articles over the year about people who've lost families to QAnon, people who've lost their mother or something to QAnon, and how heartrending it is and how it feels like they've joined a cult like Scientology or something like that. And they point to that and say that the, these, this is a horrible thing for them, not just for the, the, the non-QAnon member of the family, but the, the member of the family as well, because they get cut off. My feeling is, is that there are some high-octane thrills there that are not available in my life. Sounds like you, right? you have like kind of an under, like a sympathetic understanding of this stuff is what it sounds like. Well, I, I, look, for, uh, at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, the, one of the major projects I'm working on is I'm part of a large research team that's doing a multi-country study comparing anti-Semitic attitudes in uh, European Union countries, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, it, it, and it is fiendishly complicated, right? It is fiendishly complicated. And we haven't even got to analyzing the data yet, just constructing the questionnaire. The data will be fiendishly complicated. And it is being able to be part of a large research program like that. Actual research. It can't be about... <laughs> it, well, it's actual re- it's, it's It's not about just me. Yeah. Right? This is not about my personal quest. I'm a member of a team. I have to go through processes. We sit in a lot of meetings. I have to write a lot of position papers that nobody other than other team members will, will read. We have to go th- extensively through budgets. Now, personally, I do actually quite enjoy this sort of stuff. I mean, I'm not complaining. I do enjoy it. 
but you know, would what would it be like to be able to just say, right, I am, I am a truth seeker, and somewhere the truth is out there, and the the breadcrumbs. QAnon talks a lot about breadcrumbs. I, I can just follow the breadcrumbs, and then I can figure out how it is, what really is behind the the world as we see it. What's the real secret there? Whereas I, I, I don't think there is a secret. I just think we have a fiendishly complicated world and we can understand elements of it through, um, through lengthy processes of sometimes quite arduous research. But, Do you think right? that denialists are uh, proudly conflating skepticism with denialism? Well, there are times when it can actually cross over. So the skeptic movement in in America uh, is quite interesting in that regard. So I don't know if you know much about it. It was, you know, there are people like uh, James Randi, the magician. Mm, Sure. The amazing Randi. Yeah, who would debunk uh, Yuri Geller or or other people like that. And there's also people like Michael Shermer. Who uh, you know? Who, who who are debunkers, and and when there are strong claims, they subject them to scrutiny. But it's very, very, it's quite easy. That does a valuable ser- service, but it's quite easy for it to tip into something else. So Michael Shermer was for a long time a skeptic about anthropogenic climate change until quite recently. And he didn't really, and he didn't really want to believe it because it, he's he's personally a libertarian, so it's not really convenient for him. Now he mm. did eventually get there reluctantly, um, but those same skeptical tools can easily curdle into something else. Well, that's the case with cynicism too. You know, like there's a big difference. And I cynicism think. too, but you know, and it's it's, and the fact is. Sometimes cynicism is wanted. Sometimes skepticism is wanted. Well, skepticism is a is a is a foundation of scientific inquiry, isn't it? It absolutely is. Yes, of course. Yeah. So I mean, but but as you said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Carl Sagan. They do. Carl Sagan. Exactly. And (laughs) Carl Sagan being a a hero. <laughs> to, 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 to many of us, an American hero, I think. Yeah. Um, but but the problem is 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 that it it, it isn't always clear when the uh, when you have sufficient evidence, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you also, it's not necessarily clear what's an extraordinary claim as well, because it, at its heart, climate change, all climate change. Theory is based on actually a, a process that nobody denies is a thing, which is the greenhouse effect. Everyone mm-hmm. knows that that's things. Mm. Well, even so South Park it, came it, back and apologized, you know, about man bear pig or man pig bear or whatever it was when the man were making fun of it. You know, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I have a very big soft spot for South Park, but that but that shows that cynicism. There, there are some value to cynicism. One thing is it creates uh, good comedy a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. we we, and sometimes there are good reasons to be cynical. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, and so like in the pandemic, for some of us, it was felt who who are 
who recognize that there are things about Big Pharma that are highly problematic. Mm-hmm. Having to, at the same time, say, yes, Big Pharma is highly problematic. There are a lot of things wrong with it. But on the other hand, the vaccine is is the way to go. Yeah. Right? That that creates, that, that sort of complexity is diffi- it's difficult to hold mm-hmm. in your head. Well, because you know, um, you know, as a human, you know, or as a, most people know that like, there is, that, especially the big pharma, there's these get rich quick schemes for them. And then they've have got so much control over how that's applied to us as a population and the money they make off of that. But at the same time, we're like, you know, uh, my father and anybody else who was, you know, born in a certain period, they got their polio vaccines and eradicated polio and they did their part, you know? So it's like, I want to do my know, part too, it's, you know? It's, but that, and that makes Big Pharma ultimately quite human. Yeah. That it's capable of some incredible things that have improved our species unquestionably. And it also did the oxy, the oxycotin. Yeah, scandal, exactly. Right? And it's the same industry and <laughs> sometimes the same people. Because actually, if, in fairness, oxycotin does have a value, as does fentanyl. I just had an operation a couple, uh, three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked what they were putting into my arm when I was in the recovery room. I said, oh, it's fentanyl. No. <laughs> no, I have, an, I have it was an, I really I, liked it. I have an employee. Really she, like just, she just got a uh, thing put in for dialysis. One of my employees did, and they were. she was awake during it, and she said they, they jacked her full of fentanyl. And she was like, it made it completely bearable. <laughs> so I get yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's. So I'm, I'm all for oxycodone and I'm all for fentanyl. But I'm not for the bureau for the cynicism of getting an entire nation <laughs> hooked on them. Yeah, drug addicts. Yeah, yeah. You know. or actually, they don't call them drug addicts. And, and I, I personally, <laughs> I, I personally hate the COVID jab. I really do. I have some, I have some long-term health issues, and the the boosters lay me low. You know, but they're far better than the alternative. But that goes back to the idea of what I was saying before is, 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 is you know, that's a very uns- unsatisfying conclusion to come to, isn't it? To say, yeah, you know, yeah. to say, you know, yeah, things suck, but some things suck more than other things. Yeah. Right? That's uh, not a very heroic. Life. I don't know if you guys remember, I saw the video during the lockdown of there was, there was this one mom, she kept uploading these videos of her COVID all the way up into her death. I mean, in two weeks, she got COVID and freaking died. And it was all online. You could see it all on these TikTok videos. And I remember thinking, holy shit, I've never seen anything like that before. I've never seen somebody just, oh, I got COVID, I'm getting sick, you know, blah, blah. And this was during the big kind of fear part of COVID, like, oh, this can kill people. And then you watch somebody just like my age, you know, my kind of health, just deteriorate and die in a matter of a week or week and a half. It was wild, man. It was wild, and I remember at the very start of December 2020, I went to get to have a very minor medical procedure, not worth mentioning. And it was in the clinic where I had it. There was a queue of, I think they're mostly over 80. Mm. So it was the first people getting the jab. She thought at the time, wow, that's hope. That's hope right there. That's great. That's really nice to see that. Um, but I, but but after a while, it it just feels like right now where we are, it just feels this constant treadmill. 
mm. where this is something that we're living with. And whilst if you're vaxxed, you're unlikely to die, mm-hmm. um, you can get long-term disabilities from it. You know, so this is not this is not a satisfying narrative. Well, that is if, yeah. if you believe yeah. in it. I mean, like, you know, my ex my ex-wife, she uh, you know, she doesn't think COVID's a thing. So, you know, back to in denialism, you know. <laughs> well, as a sociologist though, and I think well, as a human being, plus uh, all these movements, all these things have an evolution, uh, have an end game somewhere down the where, although we don't know what it is. What do you think, where do you think it leads to? There are some thinking that this liberation, a desire that this represents uh, as a species, it, it kind of points to, do we ever get to the point where we all have a common moral foundation that allows us to relate to things again in an intellectual manner? Or where do you see this going? Well, I wish I knew. That was an easy <laughs> question, right? I mean, give you the easy. <laughs> I have well, a question. You What's your thing? favorite been, I, color? <laughs> What's my favorite color? I don't even know the answer to that one. No, but I will say one thing. It's sort of tangentially. Tangent, uh, uh, I'll answer the question on a tangent, which is... Fair enough. I was asked something similar a few weeks ago, and it suddenly hit me. Despite all of this... this the, the anti-vaccine in the pandemic, despite all of the turmoil caused by that, the fact is, in countries where the where the vaccine was available, most people got it. Right, the countries in Af- very poor countries in Africa where it's not widely available, and people didn't get it for that reason. But that's not quite the same thing. America, despite there being some states that were hotspots for COVID, where denial denial of it was much higher. It wasn't destroyed by COVID. It, it, it was the norm. Donald Trump had the vaccine and said he had the vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, in most countries in the world, it was very, very messy, and it still is messy. But it is still, it it hasn't toppled. This thing hasn't toppled, right? It, it's 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 still the norm for people to get the vaccine. And if they don't get the vaccine, it may be because they have no time or because they they, they, they can't bear to have another week of of having a low-grade fever like they had it last time. It is is still the sense that the medical profession has a baseline degree of respectability, right? Well, I I apologize. I should preface this. I meant denialism. Itself. Oh, where's denialism the, going? And denialism. Where is denialism going to take us to okay. with the internet and bad facts and good facts and actual facts? Okay, that, that one right, I can answer that. a little bit. <laughs> there you go. Sorry about that. Although the, what I said just before actually is still relevant yeah. to that. Yes. Um, so in my book, I argue that denialism emerges when a particular desire cannot be openly spoken of, right? So where the thing you want to do is not is seen in the dominant discourse as not legitimate, right? So Holocaust denialism emerges post-war because it isn't seen as legitimate to call for the mass murder of Jews anymore. So it's a way of arguing for something in a, in a sort of coded fashion. So people who, who, who 
believe there should be no action against anthropogenic climate change don't come out and argue that. They just say anthropogenic climate change isn't happening because it's very difficult to speak openly to say, yeah, it's, we should do nothing and people will suffer. Yeah, exactly. Right? But what that is being displaced by is something that's going closer and closer to actually a situation when you can argue for these things again in a way that you couldn't before. And it's very interesting watching the evolution of uh, the, the Trump, uh, the, the MAGA movement um, post January 6, 2000, was it 2001, wasn't it? 2001, yeah. And there are certainly areas of the Republican Party where you're starting to see quite serious and sober arguments about perhaps not outright fascism, but certainly things like restricting the franchise, uh, increasing the age of voting, um, uh, uh, moving somewhere closer. Controlling news narratives. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's towards open saying, <laughs> you know, we, we should rethink this democracy business. I mean, we're not all the way there yet. Um, but once you, once you can come out and say that, once you can come out and say Donald Trump should be president, I don't care whether there was electoral fraud or not, right? We cannot let the Democrats in ever again. We can't let the left in ever again. We have to limit democracy to the point where our people or some version of them are permanently in charge. Once you can say that, once you can, uh, once you can have the confidence to say it, why would you need to come up with bizarre conspiracies? Because maybe, because, yeah, I, mean, I guess they just don't want to accept that that is what they're really saying. You know, maybe that's... Well, I'm not sure everybody is, is saying that, but yeah. it's certainly the implication of a lot of what people are saying. Yeah, I mean, considering you know, that why, he's literally on tape saying uh, he wants to do away with democracy because they think they know better, that's what they want. That's exactly what they want. Well, I think some people it's more confused than that, but it certainly is the logical next step. Yeah. If you believe that a cabal, the deep state, whatever you want to call it, is running the world, and that our democ democracy democratic elections are a smokescreen for that, mm -hmm. then the next step is to, is to question those democratic, the democratic system itself. And this wouldn't be the first time it's happened, yeah. uh, that that questioning has happened. Well, I, I have another and question. It, it, oh, go ahead. Go on, sorry. Oh, no, no, I, was, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Right, no, that was it. That was oh, it. That's fine. <laughs> no, I, I do have a question for you, a little off subject too, just because I want to get you know some of this information in before we run out of time with you. What's interesting, it's kind of on topic but off topic. So the same the same people, right, that we're talking about now, you know, uh, Fox News and stuff like that, the same people that watch that stuff are a, you know, the same people that were some kind of spouting off Jewish space lasers, right? Now they're going on the other end of it saying that if... You which, which are not real, right? <laughs> uh, if they were, it'd be great fun to have a go at them. No, <laughs> yeah, tell me about real. it. I got a couple targets for you. Anyways, um, no, um, those are the same people, right, that, that cringe on kind of, you know, Holocaust denialism and anti-Semitism. Now they're on the other aspect of it saying that 
if you don't, you know, um, blindly support exactly what we're saying about Israel and the conflict there, then now you're an anti-Semitic. You know, do you think that's, I mean, I find that. One of my favorite, well, what, I can talk, explain that. It, well, not explain it, but one of my favorite quotes, and I, I don't know who first came up with this, is a philo-Semite is an anti-Semite who likes Jews. <laughs> is and you see an elements. I mean, I'm not going to tar all of American Christianity with it and all evangelical Christianity, but there is a certain there is a strain within it mm-hmm. that is embraced a kind of Christian Zionism that looks like it is loving the Jewish people, but in fact, if it does, it loves a very particular kind of Jew. Yeah. So I wrote about it in my 2019 book called Strange Hate, is 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 what I call selective anti-Semitism, or selective anti-racism as well. So you, you split up the good Jews and the bad Jews, uh, right? So it allows you to be an anti, a philo-Semite who likes Jews, you just <laughs> like certain kinds of Jews, and that allows at least some people to sort of come up with conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds while still saying, no, I love the Jewish people, I support Israel. Unlike those other Jews. <laughs> you know, so it's... it's. Do you think it has anything to do it, with the conspiracy of certain political Christian conservatives wanting to acknowledge Jerusalem as... It, because once they do that, then their Messiah returns or whatever, you know? I mean, do you think that, that there is like this weird underlying thing well, like that and that's what's kind of controlling that conservative narrative? Well, there's a theological thing here in, in, in I th- I, I'm not an expert in it, mm-hmm. where the, the, the Jewish people returning to Israel uh, how, uh, brings, brings the moment of apocalypse and, and exactly. the second coming yeah. that much closer. Um, I think that it's not always quite as simple as that in my experience, in my experience, I think there are other things going on on top of that as well. And as I say, I don't want to tar all evangelical Christians with the same brush because it's not a, it's not a unified thing. There are lots of different strains within it, Mm -hmm. but there certainly is a strange strain within it that does combine this. Anti-Semitism and philo-Semitism um, in the in the same thing, which is not easy. And this is why I wrote the book that I wrote in 2019 because you have something similar on the left as well that that sort of distinguishes good and bad Jews. It's very difficult to fight and to recognise that selective kind of hate, mm. and that's the same with racism as well. Is is how can I hate black people? You know, there's Ben Carson. Actually, Ben Carson's dead, isn't he? <laughs> I can't, you know, or, yeah, well, well, yeah, but it's still a good example. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. There, yeah, there's a couple uh, of know, them, yeah, and the, I say them. <laughs> there's a couple. <laughs> so, so in racism today or in anti-Semitism, the idea of saying, of rejecting absolutely everybody in a particular minority is pretty rare. You sort of combine to sort of the most radical neo-Nazis and stuff like that. What is much more common is picky and choosing. Mm. Yeah, what, a know. couple of the, I noticed the, the, what, the leader of the Proud Boys was a person of color. Well, yeah, he was I'm a, like, yeah, he was a uh, Hispanic, what? yeah. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, racism has always been a much more... Um, I'm trying to not sound complimentary here, but much more flexible thing than, white, than one might imagine. So if you look at the history of American prison gangs, which is a little bit of a hobby of myself, so I'm quite, <laughs> it's a dark fascination that I'm not particularly proud of. You have... <laughs> we have our guilty uh, <laughs> you have Jews who are involved in the Aryan Brotherhood. You've had whites who are involved in Hispanic gangs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just an example of how racism often finds a way to sort of to be a little bit more flexible in practice than it might seem. Strange you know, bedfellows. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's also the Nazis weren't completely consistent. If you look at the, if you look at Czechoslovakia. The Czechs were basically completely incorporated into the Reich. Um, they were oppressed in an incredibly cruel way. The Slovakians, very, very close linguistically, they were allowed to keep uh, a client state, right? So they're both subhuman Slavs, but a way was found to sort of to create this little hierarchy between them. I mean, who would expect... I mean, most people are not entirely consistent. And that's true of racists as well. You know, racists are only human, and therefore there, are all, there is always a way to do the seemingly impossible. Well, I mean, we have, you know, like... Yeah, go on. Well, no, I'm sorry. I didn't, I'm, I, I didn't, I didn't interrupt you. No, but I, I mean, if, just to coincide with you, like, if you look at what most drives most people to be racist, I think, you know, it is things like cultural differences or physical differences or um, even religious differences or whatever. But once you kind of if, take that away from that, you know, then you're like, oh, wait, what? So I think most humans can, when it's broken down into those little pieces like that, and then they associate somebody that, you know, maybe different color or different culture or different, you know, religious background and, and get to know them. Um, and they're in, in line with their views. They're like, oh, okay, well, I can accept this you know what I mean? Or any ones that are like this one. So I, you know, I think that's maybe even what's happening in the jails, like you're talking about. I mean, about the, the most gangs. positive way of seeing it is to say, is to say that there is something about the individual. And this goes back to what we we're talking about at the start. There's something about the individual encounter with the other that can actually be quite subversive. Right. And that sometimes you find yourself, there, there was a moment earlier this year actually um i went on a so i went on a tour of poland earlier this year mm-hmm. um to a, a to some holocaust sites in in a particular area of poland where my family was from um and it, it was a busload of people quite various from lots of different countries and, and i found that one of the people that i was instinctively most drawn to was the person on the bus whose views were actually the most antithetical to mine. Um, and they were highly problematic. Uh, and then to some extent I found offensive. But there was something about him that meant I, I just instinctively liked him. Hmm. And I think he liked me too. Right? And, and, and that's not something you can necessarily help. That, that actually sometimes there's something that flicks a switch in your brain. I've also met the converse. I've met people who have pretty much the same views as me about all sorts of things. And it just doesn't work as a one-on-one relationship. Yeah. Right. That's why, that's of course why dating 
dating apps are so uh, unsuccessful and so successful because you can't actually yeah, help you or who you, you like. don't always <laughs> really know why you're going to hit it off with someone. Oh, yeah. You know, you have the most bizarre couples, and it's the same for friendship and for politics too, that you just might like someone and there's nothing you can do about it. It's hard to quantify and measure certain certain things like, am I going to like you or not? It's like you said, it's, it's chemistry, right? So to speak. Yeah, and, and I'm sure psychologists have tried to sort of get to the bottom yeah. of it, but I think this is one of these things that we can never fully get to the bottom of. Well, it... it the, 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 as Nick said, we've got a finite amount of time with you and we'd love to have you back. It's a great conversation for us. Thank I mean, you. Uh, and, and so, but now with what's going on with the Australia Palestine uh, 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 war now, just a horrible thing that happened. But what I'm interested in here as, as a sociologist and a person of uh, the Jewish faith, I want to know what you think about particular situation, which was I took hope in, which was I see these really young tech savvy Israelis and uh, Palestinians coming together. I mean, two here and there, all that live in Israel, and they're they're kind of tired of what seemed to be the two thousand year status quo. Uh, it, it gave me hope, and I don't. I wonder. Does that type of personal interaction, they liked each other. And so they were like, let's stop causing each other pain. Is that, I know it's not well tolerated by a lot of people, but how do you see that? Does that kind of thing give you hope? Or, or what well, gives funnily you hope enough, if, I just got an email today about, uh, for, for a friend who's just up the British branch to support one of those joint Israeli-Palestinian projects. And I may well give some money and maybe I will certainly retweet them. And it's important. And it does give you hope to an extent. But I think at the moment they can't counter the dominant trend. And not only that, but they might be important for what comes up happen, happens the day after tomorrow. Yeah. Right? That, that actually sometimes there's a value for putting a marker down for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down, down the road. The other thing that struck me is that there's certainly this conflict, there is a lot of hate. Clearly, it would be wrong to deny that. But there's also a lot of thinking, well, what else can we do? Yeah. That's certainly with the Palestinian side. You know, and whether they're, you know, the narrative you often hear is, well, we did, we went with the Oslo process. You know, we tried to do this, but you didn't evacuate the settlements. We don't have our own state. Mm -hmm. Things are worse than ever. Whether, whether that's the right narrative, whether that's factual or not, isn't really the point. That's what so they therefore, think. what else do you yeah. expect me to do? You know? And I certainly see that in Israel. I, you know, I have a lot of very liberally minded Israeli friends and British Jewish friends and American Jewish friends who, who simply can't think of what else can be done 
right now that we have to let this this war play out because things are beyond the point where we can tolerate anymore, which is incredibly sad. And it, but it's also interesting the idea that you might see violence as this ultimate symbol of agency, human potency, yeah. right? But sometimes it can also be just because people can't think of another way of dealing with this. Yeah. And it has to be said that whilst I do support these Israeli-Palestinian, and I know people are involved in the Israeli-Palestinian dialogue who are amazing people, when it comes to the big picture of what does a settlement look like or the short-term question of, okay, what do we do now? They often don't have all the answers. And that's fine to admit that, but you have to recognize that there has to be some kind of response. So, yeah, there's good stuff happening. There is always good stuff happening. And it's important to support it and to prepare for the day after tomorrow. But this situation is going to play out, whether I want it to, whether anybody else wants it to, I yeah, think. Yeah, and the sobering uh, thing... That's quite a depressing the thought. The sobering thing is, for yeah, is. the world, I think, and as human, is that despite that particular conflict, tragic and as heartrending and as horrible as it is, we have people, we all know people in their own families that cannot get along with their brother, sister, mother, don't speak with them, can't agree with them, hate them. I mean, I wonder something about human nature that maybe a long time ago we crafted this my way or the highway kind of thinking thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And it's just in our genetic material now. And, and there's got to be a bigger movement or something that, that gets us away from hate as a solution. I, I don't know. And, and maybe it's beyond, maybe it's more anthropological than sociological. I don't know. But... Well, we have the opposite too. We do have that impulse within us. We do have a long human tradition yeah. of that. But we also have a long human tradition of the opposite. Good. And actually, some of these, um, there is something quite old about the conflict in Israel-Palestine, but there's also something quite recent about it as well. Because the modern Israeli, the, the Jewish nation is very old. Its exact incarnation of the state of Israel is very young. And whilst there have been uh, uh, Palestinians, in some shape or form for a very long time, Palestinian nationalism is actually, in its modern form, is quite young. So that suggests that it gives it a bit hope that this is not perhaps quite as impossible as we might think. A great example of that is Japan. You know, up until 1945, there were suicide bombers. You know, the, the most extraordinary kind of violence and Japan is not there anymore, mm. or at least for now. Yeah, hopefully. So yeah. things may not be quite as old and as ancient as, as we always think. Mm. So there is hope. There's always hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopeless hope. Well, yeah, they, it's a, how it's, about, it's how about this? We... How about we lighten up and why don't you tell me about your fascination? What did you call it? You tell me what it is about metal music that changed your life, that changed your life. I got to ask too, because I do, I, 
I, I, I have a recording studio here too. So I've got a long history of like, mm. you know, recording music and I was in a rock band for a long time Me and, too. and I still record, uh, <laughs> yep, he was too, <laughs> uh, different times, but yes. And then, uh, you know, like, uh, I'm, I'm closely in with some metal bands too, like, uh, wage war, the singer of wage war. He's, he's a friend of mine and I tattoo him, you know? So, you know, I, I saw that you do music critiques too. And I didn't know exactly on the level that you were doing that, but and it goes back a little while now. I definitely want to hear some about some of this too. Well, it goes back a long way. Um, uh, first thing to say is Florida, though, back in the day, Florida was quite the place for death metal. Sure, it was mostly it? around Tampa. Yep. Tampa. Tampa around Morristown studios. Yeah. Morbid Angel, Cobalt oh, yeah. Corpse, all that. So some of those bands are still around. Um, so, you know, I was going to ask you as a tattoo artist in Florida <laughs> that whether you knew that, of course you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it was, uh, I just, I got into metal, um, when I was very young, but then sort of started to sort of reject it because it was so, I didn't know anyone else who's into it. This was like the early eighties and it was really sexist and dodgy in all sorts of ways. <laughs> yeah, it was. And then I got back into it in the late 80s when sort of I discovered extreme forms of metal like grindcore and death metal, which was much more underground, often politically quite radical, sometimes not politically radical, sometimes very conservative, but very exciting because it sort of pushed music beyond the limit. And I started to be curious about this scene, that, that the, the global scene, particularly the global underground and how it worked. And I didn't myself get very involved, but when I, in the mid nineties, that was when my, I, I started a P, so PhD on the sociology of extreme metal in Sweden, Britain, and Israel. And I got my PhD in 2001. And part of what I was doing there is I, I, I actually fell into writing for a metal magazine. It doesn't exist anymore. It's called Terrorizer. Hmm. So I started, sort of kind of being part of that scene as well. Not not in a central way, but sort of slightly on its fringes. And then in 2007, I turned my PhD into a book called Extreme Metal Music and Culture on the Edge. And I thought at that point, okay, this is, this is the, the end for my metal writing career, but something unexpected happened, which was this whole global discipline of metal studies started to emerge. And that sort of pushed me to be stay part of it. And then I also started doing more music journalism as well. I don't do a great deal of it, but it, but I do do it a reasonable amount of writing about metal, which I, which still gives me enormous satisfaction. I just think it's a fascinating world. It's hugely diverse. It's oh yes, genres, subgenres, really the different countries go to. Oh yeah, it's have just, different types of you know. I mean, yeah, what, what's happening now in Florida is uh, the, the thrash metal is coming back. And I tattooed a young kid. He was probably 19, 20 years old. And they're all wearing the, the jeans and the high top shoes and the, the tight, you know, like the, they look like old thrash metal dudes from like the early 80s. And they're, they're bringing that back again. So it's crazy how the, you know, how circular. Oh, well, that always happens. It's probably the third or fourth revival by <laughs> exactly. now. And, um, the, the, the cutting edge of metal is incredibly creative and surprising and innovative. And also the, the scenes have changed. You know, there's now anti-fascist metal is now a thing. Mm -hmm. There's serious attempts to sort of push back against racism in metal, against sexism in metal. 
against homophobia and metal, things that I never thought would I would ever see that are happening. And and I've I'm really it, it's something that's really important to me. And I've met a lot of great people through it. Well, there's a lot and more think, women in metal now, especially too. Now that you, oh, that's since, right. Yeah, it's. I mean, there were always some. Mm-hmm. But oh, yeah, sworn enemy, it, it, you know, a couple or arch enemy, arch enemy, arch enemy, sworn enemy, arch enemy, arch enemy. Yep. Oop, I'm making a note here. Right, so, right. You know, it's, all <laughs> women of metal. Right. And there's also, um, <laughs> you know, again another thing I've never seen that has emerged relatively recently is metal in sub-Saharan Africa. Oh. You know, that was an area where there was no metal at all, but now that's sort of exploding and they're bringing interesting influences and ways of doing things into it. Cool. So whenever whenever metal sort of conquers a new country, it doesn't sort of turn them into sort of blandly homogenous people. It actually creates something, a unique local hybrid that brings something new to the party. And, and when more women get involved, they bring something new to the party. So the more diverse it gets, the more interesting it gets. Oh, yeah. And also more difficult to understand. I mean, it, it's, I, I've, I'm getting old and I'm finding it very hard to keep track of new releases and stuff like that. So there's this complete torrent of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I hope this will be part of my writing life, at least, and my personal life indefinitely. Um, but I probably wouldn't want this to be the only thing I did. <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm sure no, it won't I, be. I, uh, you, you have a, just diverse interests. It's amazing. I mean, um, uh, you kind of mentioned it in, in uh, your, by the way, your website is amazing. It's amazing. I love it. It's just so accessible. There's so many great things, so many uh, uh, places to click on. I didn't design it. I know, you. I know, but you... I, <laughs> I paid. I paid money. I paid part of the advance for the Babel yeah, message I, to a web designer. It was amazing. It's amazing. Whoever did that for you, you did a good man. Job. I tell you what, very nicely done, uh, and and it's so easy to use and so easy to get to know you there. Uh, you know, Wikipedia, be damned. It's just you did the right thing by starting that. I got to tell you, uh, it's good. And and well, I kind of had to because my life is so incredibly complicated. Yeah. That I can't that I can't do it with a simple no. web page. You know, no. I have to it's, just, it's remarkable. And yeah. thank you. I appreciate it. So what you about what it. about your wife? Does she share your uh, your taste in music? Nick and I are all the time talking about the, the things we have in common so far as our our wives, because he's a younger version, way younger version of me, and uh, our work, <laughs> the strange hair that we have growing out in different places, that type of stuff. And <laughs> so how how do you does you does your wife love metal? Or are you having to go into the closet there and listen to the? No, she doesn't. Although she certainly doesn't disapprove, but my kids oh. do. Hmm. They disapprove, I've or they like your music. Met- uh, no, they ah. like it. I, I mean, not all of the things I like, but I've been to metal gigs with my son and with my daughter. My son's twenty, and my daughter's seventeen. Excellent. And go, and so that's been a lot of fun. It, it's added a whole new dimension to it. But I didn't push it. I know them. that's how that's, that sounds like uh, me and my kids. All my kids love the music that I used to listen to, and they listened to uh, when they were growing up. And they still they, they they kind of branched off to different stuff, but they always come back to listening to some of the stuff that I was listening to. Pretty cool, and it's a great thing to have in common with your kids. Also, my kids have told me about yeah. things that I've got into. In fact, sometimes they've turned me yeah. onto things. I got into them. I still like them, and the kids have moved on. 
All right. Well, what about if I was to, uh, to you were to send me some stuff that you listen to? Do you just listen to metal, or do you have really diverse taste in music? No, no, I listen to a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I listen to I. It's okay. This is a safe space. I, I you can a, tell it. <laughs> I, 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 I like I like encountering sort of weird YouTube music subcultures. Ah. Like there's a subgenre called hard bass, which is Russian and Eastern European, and it's you know working class Russians uh, wearing tracksuits, smoking cigarettes, <laughs> drinking vodka, <laughs> and working out in the snow. Making this incredibly propulsive, uh, trashy but incredibly addictive dance music. <laughs> it's worth having a look at. Hard bass. I'm going to so check that's that the out. Sort of thing that I listen Sounds to, like something that, Serbians that I, would be listening to. And your wife is listening to Keith Urban, right? I was a uh, big guest. No. She's not Keith Urban, no. <laughs> uh, she she quite likes jazz. My dad was into yeah, jazz. Yeah, me too. So, right, well, he still is into yeah, jazz. Yeah, I'm a jazz so, person. You know, she sometimes takes me along to things. We've been to African music concerts together because she really likes African music. So we've been to oh. that sort of stuff as well. So my tastes are fairly Catholic. Oh. Okay. Well, I'm glad people like us are having kids because most kids are uh, uncultured swines, you know? So <laughs> I talk to 20-year-olds oh, all absolutely. the time and I'm just like, man, you, you got to open your pages here and 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 learn about some other cultural music and different stuff this this you know tiktok thing uh just like well you can get very siloed on social media and just do what the algorithm tells you and you have to sort of push yourself to find new stuff but you know like our culture i mean i'm i'm at the butt end of gen x but gen xers were really proud of digging you know going out and finding that stuff you know like i i see here you know like um, said that, that you had a fanzine and stuff like I remember zines and and I remember all of that stuff and you know uh, a lot of like one of my coworkers or not coworkers one of my employees she's she's you know 27 28 and they're like I get to understand I understand the idea that they hate you know um, gatekeeping and why they do but back then it wasn't it was a scene it wasn't gatekeeping it was just a scene and they were proud of their scenes and they were trying to keep their scenes from becoming diluted because you know that's what people do in the kind of tribalist nature of human beings um it turned into gatekeeping after that but you know it was interesting as somebody who wasn't in, in a scene i kind of waded through many scenes you know what i mean and just kind of got all of that stuff in you know and kids don't do that and i just don't feel like they did you know? Well, I, I think, but it, it's it's two sides of the coin. On the one hand, it's easier to be to get very siloed, but on the other, it's quite easy to also to make chance discoveries. Of course, when you follow that trail, mm-hmm. you know that one odd thing that comes up, the algorithm recommends you can ignore it, or it can take you somewhere new. So there's it it, it it's a double edged sword. Yeah, it I'm can, sure it can lead you to new things or it can keep you just where you are indefinitely. Um, that goes for other things, not just music. Okay, now you gotta you gotta you guys gotta explain to me for the old guy what gatekeeping is. I take a gatekeeping is something I probably do and I don't know it. What what am I what what, what am I missing? I think that's normal in not in scenes that are, in, in informal communities where you don't have a like a formal membership policy. Oh. right? 
there will be people who are more influential and who it can be done in nice ways and less nice ways. It's become you know, a toxic in, thing in online. It, it always had been some toxic aspects of it. I personally, like me personally, and I can say this, I guess, uh, I've, I've gatekeeped a couple things. I'm, I'm, I don't you, do give it me maliciously. An example. Give me an example, a real world example. So there's an example from, um, particularly from metal, which you see online, is women wearing metal t-shirts. Name three songs. <laughs> and people and, and men thinking that men accusing them of only like it because they like the way it looks, oh. and or or it's too it's esoteric and you don't know anything. I, hate, I'm also you know. in the gaming community, like you know D and D and Vampire the Masquerade and all that stuff. And there's a lot of gatekeeping in that too with old dogs like myself, you know. Um, and and I I I personally I think you know I. It can I, I see how it comes off as toxic behavior, and I know that it is toxic in most cases. But also, I don't think that there's anything wrong with being a part of a scene for a long time and then not wanting to see it, you know, wanting to share it with people. But also, you know, it's like it's like an old school Star Wars fan being upset about like all the kind of new Star Wars <laughs> crap coming out. You know what I mean? And saying that it's crap could be considered, you know, <laughs> a form. Oh, that I don't know, man. Well, I think it, 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 at its best, it can be a way of educating people. Say, yeah. okay, you like this, you're attracted to this. Why don't Why don't you try this? Yeah, exactly. Right, uh, and so that's in the it, you know, so it can be a benign thing, and it can be the opposite of benign. Hmm. It really depends on what the scene is and what its culture is, and there's often a gender dynamic as well. You know, it can become very. It can be a lot of mansplaining and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But again, there are ways around that as well. So it's it's not necessarily illegitimate that people are involved in a particular world, you know, have a certain status in that world. The question is what you do with that status. Yeah. So so what's up next for you, uh, Doctor? Uh, are, are you going to discover maybe the uh, the best water skier in some obscure, well, let's say Luxembourg or something? Oh, you would. That was a project I did in 2011. <laughs> I think that's the funniest the thing ever. Skier in I read that it was like n- titled "Best Water Skier in Luxembourg." I'm like, Luxembourg has water? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's got five water skiing clubs. That's amazing. That is amazing. I mean, not, they don't have the ocean. They're on the river, and one's on a river. That's remarkable. What? What is that? Your that's, newest that's project? That's too complicated. A story. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not. That's an old it. project uh, that I might resurrect one oh. day. At the moment, um, things are very serious. I'm working on this very big, very serious, very large-scale international survey, uh, which I do enjoy. Um, And after that, it might be something slightly crazy or another big survey. Oh, you you need to tell us about um, that when that happens because I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, uh, It's just amazing. I I am so... so, uh, I just really admire you for your variety of interests. Uh, I think that's the the best sign of a of a of good human being is someone who's looking out there at everything. As as my father used to say, "Life's an all you can eat buffet." Metaphorically, go out there and sample everything. Yeah, so uh, good for you, man. And for the with the internet, you can do a lot of it just for your bedroom. Oh. So. 
Yeah, some of that is good. <laughs> 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 no, I know, I know. I'm just kidding. kidding again. The kidders here. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and uh, and the best of all. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, and for sure. Do let me know when this is out, and I will share the yeah, link. I'll be. Uh, yeah, we'll be uh, probably. You know, uh, it takes me. I'll explain all this when we when we cut the episode here. But yeah, we. I, I want to thank you too. I've. You know, I do reach out occasionally. We're kind of a smaller show, and I. I, re- I personally reach out to everybody that, that we have on as guests or my dad does, you know, and, you know, it, I, I really appreciate you getting back to me, you know, uh, sometimes, especially uh, in, in the world of social media, you get a lot of cold shoulders, you know, and I appreciate the, you know, the fact that you unsolicited, you know, you responded to my email and that was really cool of you. So we, we appreciate having you on. Not at all. And, and uh, it's been a great, I, I, we would love to have you back on again sometime because it, this has been a great, there's a hundred other things that we want to talk about <laughs> that we didn't even get to. Um, but is Let's there anything else? Uh, is there anything um, that you would like to personally plug right now or that you got? Uh, I think you gave me the space to plug a lot of stuff. Okay, so perfect. I'm not going yeah, sure uh, to add to the list. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead. Thank you for having it. Uh, or thanks for being on. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Dad, is there anything else you nope. want to say before nope, we good, stop good, here? Good, good. Right. Uh, we're going to all. Nice to meet you, Nice both. to meet you, sir.